And Chris, let's pick up our conversation, starting with The Dark Knight, which is a big place to start. When's the last time you saw this movie? I don't know. I <laughs> think, I, I, I sometimes find it weird. I am a multi-watcher of movies. For instance, I, you know, I mentioned I, I loved Interstellar. I think I've seen Interstellar probably like 10 times. Wow. And The Dark Knight, I know I've seen multiple times in a study format or like an admiration format. I think I saw it twice in theaters, but I don't have like an encyclopedic memory of when I watch or the total amount, right? That's been something on my mind lately is how much I rewatch movies because there's a few people I follow on Twitter that talk about films a lot and they're constantly referring to the, you know, the, the, when I rewatched this movie last night or the third time that I saw this and like, who has time to watch all these movies more than twice? But the, the few that I have watched more than once since I was a child, you know, as, as a kid, I watch movies over and over and I do, I do a lot less of it now, mm-hmm. but a lot of them were Christopher Nolan movies, Interstellar, Inception, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins. I've all, I've seen all of them, Memento. So I've seen most of his movies more than once. And that's mm-hmm. pretty rare. I, d- I don't do that with a lot of films. Well, I know the, the general question, who has time for blank, <laughs> is <laughs> almost as ambiguous as it gets because every person's life is filled with 24 hours in the day and how they use them is up to them. And well, I know in between our recording yesterday and right now, I know you saw a movie and, you know, you could have watched an excellent, fantastic movie and <laughs> who, you went who, to who's see Who's saying I didn't? What? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you went to see Tomb Raider, right? Yeah, uh, I did. We haven't but talked about you it. You know but. what's funny is that uh, Anya, lo- like, loved it, like, freaked out leaving the theater, just enjoyed it so much. And then it was funny because recently we saw Thor Ragnarok, which to me instantly was a, a home run. As soon as we left the theater, I'm like, this is, this is like Hollywood popcorn at its finest. And she was like, eh, I don't know why. I don't know what you saw in it. And then this was, this is the one that was incredible to her. So was it inverted? Do you think it has to do with just the bias of what you I, each brought to me? I can't the help but think about it. I mean, the fact of that course. there's a female lead, I'm like, yeah, maybe there was just something more relatable. I, you know, I don't know. Absolutely. Um, I find and have always found this with movies. I personally have had a hard time with movies that I have absolutely loved in my life when people either dislike them or hate them. I, I'm, oh, it, it hits me in a weird emotional place. Right. I'm like, oh, how dare you almost? <laughs> or like, you know, but um, I've learned more and more about the bias that I bring, the fact that I see every, everyone sees it within a lens. And we talked about that lightly yesterday. Just, I guess I've done even more thinking about it that Christopher Nolan has not only all male leads, but I believe all white male leads too. Right. Yeah. So, and you know, if it hits you in a bias and you don't even notice, it's part of what having a bias is, I guess. And it's that invisibility, right? Yeah. But the rewatching, I know I saw Interstellar either twice or three times in theaters because. Actually, I saw Inception twice in theaters, too. But I have this theory that says if one of the characters is the environment and that environment has to speak the language of size, like, for instance, if it takes place in space or a big city or like I saw Everest uh, multiple times in theaters, but it's because one of the contextual characters is the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to hear that environment's language in on a small screen, you know, and Christopher Nolan seems to be, he is one of those people that's like pushing for the insistence of 
seeing things in either IMAX or 70 mil or theater. Right. Well, uh, you know, I mean, the theater t- experience. Tarantino not doing large format, but he's he's a huge proponent of that as well. Yeah, like see it in the theater. Yeah, he runs his own theater in LA as well, which uh, we went to oh. a, a showing there once, and it was it was really cool. It was a cool experience, and like there was even a few because it's in LA. There was a few people I recognized in the audience, and it just it had this really neat experience of like, wow, this is what. This is what Hollywood's supposed to feel like. Yeah, definitely. And and going to the movies, I find that it's a different experience. Like probably the most excessive I've been in that in this way was Gravity. I saw Gravity five times in IMAX. I, it's because I knew like you know the amount of time left in theaters was small, and when it got um, nominated for the Oscars, it went back into theaters and back into IMAX. And that's when I saw it the fourth and fifth time, I think. I wonder if IMAX film would have disappeared by now without Christopher Nolan. Like he really might single-handedly be keeping that specific format alive. Well, in between yesterday and today, I rewatched a couple of things. I felt like my brain wasn't quite sharp enough. I wasn't doing due diligence enough to to record this. So I did a couple more things. You, you want to start at the beginning? <laughs> yeah, you know, we could, but no, no, no the, no the, uh, I knew that I was getting that feeling that Christopher Nolan had developed the size and scope style, you know, like specifically that his movies seem to grow in scope and, and physical size, like the types of sets and the types of things that started to grow right from Batman begins through the dark night into inception and then all the way up until recently with Dunkirk, right? Where it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the things that I rewatched in that director series that they pointed out was that Batman Begins was the first one to incorporate IMAX. And I think it was the first feature film to incorporate IMAX. And Yeah, I wrote that down. Yeah, and, and that was crazy. But also it was the first, oh no, wait, it might've been the dark night that did this. Maybe not Batman Begins. But the Dark Knight at least started that trend of the IMAX aspect ratio and then just changing to the 35 mil aspect ratio while you're watching it. You know, like I still think that is so weird. Back and forth (laughs) and back and forth. Yeah. It's funny because when I saw The Dark Knight, I didn't notice it. I didn't, I was like, oh, there's IMAX shots in here. And then I watched the movie and just didn't spot them. But then in other ones, I I think especially in an IMAX theater, you notice it more. And it just doesn't feel like the right decision to me. I mean, uh, I love the I love the IMAX, but having the aspect ratio change is just so bizarre because it feels like a very visible artifact of the the process. You know, it's like yeah, it, 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 it whether or not you you end up noticing it, it's just like it's leaving in the strings of a kung fu fight you know it's i i don't know like it's weird because the 35 mil aspect ratio that it crops down to you still are looking in the center of the screen that's one of the things that they commented on with the framing that they had to go go through with the imax like shooting is it broke conventional composition rules because the top and bottom have to be somewhat dead space. Yeah, like to some degree, they have to be an extension of the environment, not where the eye line goes or where eye lines or heads go or anything like that. And or else, in the back and forth changing, it's going to disorient you like completely. But I, what I find weird is that people legitimately don't notice this. 
in even me. I mean, the <laughs> fact that I, I care about these things and I ever missed it is strange. You know, to me, you know, the other thing, there was one thing that similarly hit me in this way when I started in photography, specifically photography, which was going to hockey games and realizing that there's like 20 times a minute, there's a big flash that goes off in the arena. That is the sport photographer's flash. Mm. And I, you know, I started to realize like, how is it that they're getting, you know, it's when I was learning about shutter speeds and all that shit, right? Like, it's like, oh, it's so, it's lit so well. And like one five thousandth of a second. And then I started to notice this flash. And then the other thing I noticed is if you go to like a pretty much any sport event, the the flashes in the arenas are all pro photo receivers. So you can bring a pro photo or not a pro photo. Sorry. What? You can, uh, what is it? A pocket wizard. A pocket wizard. <laughs> you can bring a, a pocket wizard and just cycle through the channels and fi- wow. fire it off yourself if you want. <laughs> but um, that was one thing that when I noticed it, I realized how unnoticeable it was, even though it was so abrupt. Like if you go to a hockey game or I imagine football games, eh, football, not so much if it's a, well, anything that's inside of an arena. But regardless, this was the thing that I noticed the technical end of it and then realized, wow, how do people not notice this? But like 19,000 people, like game after game after game, don't notice it. And same with these shifting aspect ratios. And they probably would notice it, for instance, if if they did follow the compositional rules from like the two, 2.4 to 1 aspect ratio like, you know, where you'd put the head in the 35 mil frame and then all of a sudden the head went into the right place. Like I say the right place with quotes, you know, but if the head of the actor was moving up and down and around and all over the place, changing for the IMAX frame and then the 35 mil frame, then people would notice it. But as long Mm -hmm. as they follow that kind of rule that that the top and bottom of the IMAX frame is used for dead space, then it's kind of mind blowing that people don't. Because it's so abrupt. But the other thing I wanted to point out was The Force Awakens was the first major blockbuster, I think, that used it just pragmatically. They they used IMAX just to expand how big the actual photographic plate was for, like, pan and scan. Because they didn't publish in that aspect ratio, like the IMAX right. aspect ratio. They just used it for things like extended motion trackers and more real estate. Which makes more sense to me. To either shoot all IMAX or or partial or or the yeah as a practical tool and not a presentation method, but obviously one of the most memorable things or, or things that people still talk about the most is the Joker and Heath Ledger's performance in this, which maybe isn't a Christopher Nolan thing, but was a I don't know kind of a, a defi- I, I think a defining moment in really big budget film, especially because of the Oscar nominations and win that came after it. Yeah, he picks up the. Best supporting, best supporting, right? And yeah. he, I think, of all the things that really steals any major attention, both thematically in, ter- in terms of scenes and style and everything, it's what Heath Ledger brought to the Joker. And I know that's a collaboration. Heath Ledger doesn't become that Joker without Christopher Nolan, and Christopher Nolan doesn't make that movie without Heath Ledger. So I know it's another just extension of. that collaboration of working with the right people, picking the right people, having faith in the right people. I think a great way to enjoy anything that's been out for a while is to keep reminding yourself of how surprising something was. So the big one here was seeing the Joker for the first time. Like when I saw those trailers, 
and saw their shared image, their collaborative image of what the Joker was going to be. It's, it's crazy to remember how different that was from the Joker we were always used to and, and how much sense it made. Like instantly you're like, wow, this is totally different and amazingly cool. Like this is not what I expected, but I totally get it. This is the same character, but so fresh and so original. And it really, it, it, it took, it took a lot to come up with something that different and then instantly memorable and what became definitive that was pretty far off of a very established character. Mm, Yeah. And knowing what, like you and I were pretty much the perfect age to see the Tim Burton Batmans as well. And to know Jack Nicholson as like, he is the quintessential Joker. He has the energy in him. It seems like an established character that doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. And then now it, it truly feels like the inverse of that is true now. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Now I feel like I've forgotten the Jack Nicholson Joker. I just don't think about him anymore. But I do have more room in my head for Mark Hamill's Joker. That is still, those are the two Jokers to me now, is is Mark Hamill from cartoons and video games. That is a, that, I, I feel like his is strong, like it lasts longer than than Nicholson's. Nicholson's I guess it made sense at the time, but any times I've rewatched it since, I'm like, ah, this is just so hammy. <laughs> like it, do- it doesn't hold up to me. Well, what's weird is like I'm I'm looking at at the dates. I didn't realize this about the Dark Knight, but it came out in 2008, so it's 10 years ago. And it, Batman, the original Tim Burton's Batman, came out in 1989. So yeah, wow. yeah, 29 years ago. Yeah, which. It, <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> you know, it's, that's, in, <laughs> Time. that is insane, but that is uh, like Jack Nicholson's character doesn't stick to our lived in world as much as, well, that's another testament of what the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy is, is that they, they made it to, to like fit into our world that it doesn't seem like Gotham is this, you know, ethereal completely different place as mystical as the Tim Burton, especially the uh, Joel Schumacher ones, but <laughs> mm-hmm. a very lived in quality. And to even know the Joker, you know, there's all the kind of general talk about, is he a post-military guy with PTSD or is he like, what makes that character, that character, that, that guy, that guy, he's like the ultimate nihilist, you know, in like a, it, it, nothing matters, so I'm going to do whatever I want, kind of guy, or just watch the world the world burn. And you know, to know that they pulled that off, especially because when it gets cemented into culture, it just feels like that's the way it is and should be. It does feel weird remembering what it was like leading up to it. Even you know, at the end of Batman Begins, when they flip over the card and it's the Joker card, and just knowing the Joker's coming. It's right. got that lead up that the whole marketing campaign leading up to it. And uh, that was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And I, I would say one of my favorite things, I know this is a, a terrible way to go about like <laughs> taking in entertainment, but one of my favorite things in general is building up a lot of hype. And then the thing itself beating that hype that yeah. like, that's yeah, the it best. was so different from what I expected. Like I, I expected to see, the Joker I was used to. And then that the trailers, you're like, wait, this isn't what I thought was coming. And then, but I've also got to say, I actually, I didn't have a, a huge impact when I first saw the dark Knight compared to most people. It, it was very good, but the, 
newness of Batman Begins surprised me more. And this touches on something I'll, I'll talk about anytime I've been talking about movies is the way that you go into a film is so much of what you take home with it. And it's a lot of how I approach reviews that I read or how I take in other people's criticism of movies oh, yeah. and why I, I very much subscribe to the full media blackout theory of any film that you know that you're going to see. Like if you think there's a decent chance you'll like a movie, I really strongly believe that you will enjoy it more if you don't build the hype for yourself, if you don't watch all the trailers and read all the behind the scenes leaks and the more you anticipate it, the the more ways you're letting yourself potentially be let down. And the example for me with Dark Knight was just how good it was. I I wasn't the first person to see it. A bunch of friends had already seen it and reviews had started coming mm-hmm. out and I'd already heard like, this is the best performance, blah, 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 blah. And, and then of course you spend too much of the movie just thinking about, was it the best performance? Have I ever seen a better actor in a, as a villain or was Jack Nicholson better? Or like, this isn't what you should be thinking about during the movie. You shouldn't be comparing it to the expectations you had. And I, I don't think it's just me. I think a lot of people go through this subconsciously and then rate the movie afterwards based on if it was what everybody told them it was going to be before they saw it. And that just can really rob an otherwise wonderful movie going. I, I think this all comes down to bias as well, because all, everything you just said is what prepares you to best enjoy a movie. And I know I have d- both done that, the full media blackout, and not done that. And to be honest, I don't know why I like certain movies, you know? Like, I don't know if it's a, a prep kind of the way I lead up to it or what I'm thinking about it. But one of the things that I I deeply appreciate about especially information delivery or the economy of a movie is whether or not it ever feels like it's sitting still. Like the script truly has a beat by beat by beat. Like it has a tempo. And I I feel like, I don't know, that's the job of, of a director at the end of the day is, is to take any brain that you bring in there and that they manufacture your experience that you ultimately have. And I remember, I think it was, Quentin Tarantino that said this of, I think it was James Cameron and Avatar. I can't remember, but Quentin Tarantino just says he wants it to be like a, like a roller coaster. You know, you get on and you have no control. You're under someone else's control and the, the entire experience is planned for you. And he always well, said that of Avatar. He said, Oh my God, James Cameron did it. And I think it was that anyway. I, I can't. Right. I think that the thing is, is there's no way to guarantee a, a good, experience to go into, no. but that there are a bunch of variables that can drastically increase the likelihood of enjoying it less. And I mean, for some people that can be uh, knowing certain things about the actors, like knowing that they are, they have a terrible history of domestic abuse or oh, yeah. that, uh, you know, like so often now it's like sexual assault allegations have come out and now can you still watch it in the same way? And so those are kind of some extreme examples, but I think it's just that if the more things that are in your mind while you're watching the movie that aren't the movie that are just are taking you back home to when you're sitting in front of your computer reading about it or just to the last conversation that you had about it as much as you can be present in the film that can only help you know I, and i think anything that during your first viewing of the movie brings you outside of the movie 
is it's just a variable that can ruin it and it doesn't guarantee it will. Some people don't mind this at all, but the more external factors, you know, I, yeah, I think and, can be you know, I guess this is just the market for movies as well. You kind of think of books and how, how many times do you ever read like a summary of a book before reading a book? You know, uh, you, you don't you mm-hmm. either take the referral or you, someone says this is really good or it's, has a good review or suggestion, and then you just dive in. There's not a lot of context that you bring to yeah. it. But, you know, like, well, we if we want to keep on board to Christopher Nolan, then I guess we should keep on board with Christopher Nolan as well because <laughs> we wanted to catch ourselves in in the kind of digressions, right? Yeah, what, what are we talking about here? <laughs> well, The Dark Knight's specifically just the achievement that it was. And there's a couple of things like that editorial pacing that lead up to really perfect moments in the dark night. Like when the Joker sets everyone up, I think it's right after he blows up what Rachel and, you know, Harvey Dent's face is on fire and he gets out of jail. And then that one single shot of the Joker hanging out the car and riding. Right. Like, oh yeah. That is such a strong shot. I'd never, it's, it's like it. one of the, like you as a, as a viewer, you feel hopeless almost. You feel like, you almost feel like the the Joker is directing the movie, you know? And it was funny, actually, now that I think of that, I just recently watched a talk with Kyle Cooper, who was the title designer for Seven. He did the opening titles for the movie Seven. And mm-hmm. those opening titles kind of shifted what title sequences could be. But one of the things that they wanted you to feel right from the beginning was that John Doe, who was in control of the theme of the movie you almost wanted the sense that John Doe created the titles too. Like that the, from the second mm-hmm. the movie started that you were in his control, not the director's control. And okay. the Joker, you don't see that coming. You know that he's up to something. And, you know, what What I find so amazing, I guess I heard Alex Garland say this, who's the director of uh, Ex Machina and Annihilation. When he was talking about Ex Machina, uh, he said, uh, the nature of being outsmarted is that you don't know what's happening w- to you while it's happening to you. That's that's the <laughs> right. definition of it. And it really is kind of scary because you will never know when it's happening. The Joker, the character is so in control in that way. And then it just peaks at that scene. But that style as well of the how they shot that is very reminiscent to the side-mounted IMAX camera that would, I believe, start here, and then it goes, I don't know that they went, no, they didn't do it in Inception, but it was a staple in Interstellar and Dunkirk, right? The side-mounted IMAX camera. You know, one thing I love about it in the specific Joker shot is is the large format uh, lens compression and depth of field. Like, just technically, it's also a really beautiful shot, even as a still like the the way that the the shine of the police car and the way Joker's face looks the, like the the balance of sharpness between them and the background and the lens selection just like that was a a great use of a larger format and I think is is part of what made it so memorable like the technical aspects of this simple film shot with probably zero VFX yeah. in it uh, you know just so memorable I also don't want to forget though about Harvey Dent who I I feel like was overshadowed by the whole Heath Ledger situation, but was a really well-executed villain as well. If the Joker wasn't in The Dark Knight and this was a Harvey Dent movie, it still would have been great. Like, I really 
enjoyed that journey and found it to be a really, really strong part of the film. Yeah. And I, I think just didn't get talked about because it wasn't as big. It wasn't as much of the, the overall yeah. spectacle, but it was such great character development and great acting. And I just, I, I really followed it closely and, and cared. I felt invested in that. Yeah, aspect it's, of the it's weird well. seeing such great efforts get overshadowed by even better efforts. And this, this has to be yeah. just one of the things that is frustrating about a career of support roles. You know, even, you know, those actors that are always described as the actor, you know, but you don't know their name, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. What's his name again? I don't know, uh, but what is the deal? Uh, IMDb I, there? I think Aaron Eckhart, I think I, that's without yes, looking it yes. up. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's had some leads now though. Thank you for smoking is the, the oh, one I love. Great. I think he's a great actor, but if you think about, you know, if you, if you feel for Aaron Eckhart and the, and the character of Two Face or Harvey Dent, there's, there's so many characters that support these movies that, that all just fall yeah. to the wayside of, Something like the Joker, and it's good. This is a good thing that the Joker takes this much attention because it really does make you feel like the Joker is the quintessential threat that everyone is afraid of because he's unavoidable in his charisma and his impact on your mind, right? And I, like, I remember years ago, I read a quote that said, you can't defeat an enemy when they have an outpost in your mind. And mm. I, I adore that because it largely comes down to mental things where you have a smarter antagonist or a smarter protagonist if they win, right? End up winning. But that is just on a side note, what you brought up about shooting large format. You know, I remember learning, this is on the, on the camera end or the photography end of this, but I remember learning about hyperfocal distancing of like what creates depth of field. And ultimately mm-hmm. that difference of when you shoot with like a medium format back, or even like if you shoot four by five slide or an eight by 10 camera or something, what it does to the depth of field, you know, or the relationship of what like a 40 mil lens becomes or like a 60 mil lens, but it does actually change that depth of field. So you can have this huge area of something like that shot where the, the car is in focus, but it falls off like it's a like a 1.2 or 1.4 lens or something, but it's probably like mm-hmm. F five, six or something. Right. But <laughs> it does project that aesthetic. It's not just a larger format. It actually changes the hyperfocal distancing or the depth of field. Right. Which. Well, and a really quick sh- side note is we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. I mean, the rise of Ari's uh, medium format, or like 65 millimeter mm-hmm. digital mm-hmm. backs. And now they have a full frame, 35 mil version and oh, uh, Canon also announced a full frame version of their C700 camera. So uh, it, all the, all the frame sizes are getting bigger and bigger and we might see a lot less of the super it's 35 weird. format. Like, where's it going to end? You know, it's just going to keep going, going obviously. And especially as the price performance, you know, continues to go down or like, you know, up and down at the same time, per- price going down, performance going up. And it's weird thinking that like, Digital is going to have 8K, 10K, 12K, 16K, because it will, and it will be used. And then also just the size of the sensors, you know, as it gets cheaper and cheaper. And like, it's going to be bizarre. I guess when you have something like IMAX, IMAX is a different beast because IMAX traditionally, there isn't a digital one, is there? It's all film, right? No matter what. I I don't know, is it? the, The two things like, for instance, on The Dark Knight that I picked up back, on that director series again, is that 
almost all of the IMAX shots are where there's no dialogue because the camera is so loud, you know? It was so loud. And also, I was just trying to think how small could that camera get, but if anyone has the chance to just like just Google an IMAX IMAX projector as well. <laughs> it does not look like a no, camera. Oh, no, sorry. I was going to say the camera. projector the- as well. Like it is insane how big they are and how many moving pieces there are. Like it's a thing uh, on its own. But what I was going to say, the, the camera looks like it's a camera obscura. It's just a yeah, giant totally. box with a little lens yeah, attached to the front. Say. But I, I, I do think at the, at the end of the day, it's... It's hard to put the other movies above the Dark Knight in terms of I don't know I do like the other ones I you know I was saying Interstellar but Dark Knight is I, really I, I good mean, it holds up really yeah, really well between Dark Knight and Inception these are I think the two best examples from that happen to be from one director it could have it could have been multiple directors but he happens to have the two best examples of a extremely high budget mass market film that is of exceedingly high quality in, in recent history, you know, like that is really meant for the most broad, wide appeal and is also incredibly good. Personally, I, I think those are just some really strong examples yeah, and, to look at. Over the and last these couple budgets decades. as they keep going up and as, as he gets more money and more support from the studio, it, it is like, you just don't see directors get this chance very often where they where they have full kind of artistic support, their sensibility is trusted and they have just a seemingly un like unlimited budget. And then they pull off like defining films that change Hollywood and what you expect out of movies. And, you know, where something as it goes from the dark Knight to inception, when it goes into what was it that he was called an emotional math mathematician, I think, you know, where it, it becomes the smarter, more intelligent, crazily structured films that kind of mimic more of Memento's structure than the Batman. Even though the Batman movies are like multiple parallel timelines and there's a bunch going on, there's a lot of moving parts, it's not the same as like Inception and Memento. And I guess it was what following is his first film. And in that director series as well, they say that Inception could be like the, you know, the big brother, or I guess the older sibling to following. Because they, I guess, neither of us have seen it though. So we <laughs> we have to watch that. You don't put it on the list. Yeah, we, we didn't yeah, do our homework appropriately. Well, let's let's keep moving forward with Inception then, because this, I mean, this is a big one. Like we we could have just done this whole episode about uh, Batman and Inception because they are just that their effects r- have been reverberating so much more than any of his mm-hmm. other films. I think, and uh, I'll I'll be surprised if he surpasses these two. Mm-hmm. In success, not not necessarily in quality, like I, you know, like the the best movies might be yet to come, but it would be hard to have bigger and more widely loved films than this. And a, a huge thing about Inception, maybe a place to start, is I remember reading a great GQ article when it came out about how this was the one film breaking the painful cycle of reboots and you know, franchise films that there just had not been any original IPs that had serious budgets behind them and really ambitious special effects. And, you know, were meant to be blockbusters 
and we're starting for, with a new idea at all. Like that, the fact that that is had disappeared mm-hmm. completely at this point, and actually it hasn't really come back. It's still only really Christopher Nolan that's been doing things at this scale that are not a sequel or a reboot. Yeah is is crazy and 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 I'm I'm surprised that it didn't kick that off at all that it didn't give studios more trust in other directors or you know it it didn't lead to renaissance of it it was kind of a one off like right now I guess Guillermo del Toro is is kind of I don't know is totally different style of of movies but yeah trusted well and I think also not the not same trusted. target of of wide appeal like his none of his films are meant to be blockbusters. They're meant to be good. Yeah, and yeah. it is it is weird. I know even the the point of having a podcast talking about him is that he's kind of an anomaly <laughs> in terms of like especially creating new intellectual property and being a co writer or a writer on these things. So they are the brainchild of him. And in that Steven Soderbergh State of Cinema movie, it was or sorry uh, talk. It's just the definition of cinema. Or like, you know, more or less, I think, defined by him is just if you took that director or that those quintessential creative people away, it would be a completely different movie. And, you know, these movies like Inception doesn't happen without Christopher Nolan. And I think Jonathan Nolan, his brother, co-wrote it, right? I think, you know, you just don't get this. And one of the other things I did last night is I watched Inception. Good idea. Yeah. And it's actually funny. You know, I'll comment back on that bias of what a movie is like when you first go see it or what it is, you know, to your first impressions. And not only did I not, like, did Inception not get me at all, but I I went and saw it in Victoria on my birthday when I was in photography school and I fell asleep in it. And I, I, I wonder, I'm like, what was my brain like at that moment? Because I watched it last night and I'm like, yeah, this is a great movie, but it's interesting. There's a lot of things about it that I think are different. One one of the things is it's there's so much exposition. It's crazy. There's so much describing yep. what's going on. And that is, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I guess mentally exhausting because it's complicated just like Interstellar, just it's like this is the levels, this is how the person works, this is who this person is, this is their job, this is why they matter. And yeah, it's also quite funny in its structuring, because I was thinking as I was watching it, it, it has the whole opening sequence that has that, like, uh, I think it's when Leo gets dunked in the, uh, into the bath for the tip, or I can't remember even what it's called, but, and, you know, and then the water shoots in into that room while he's in the dream world, right. Shoots in like on the sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all that spectacle that opens up the movie, but then there's not really a lot of, like there's a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of character stuff for the first, like, you know, I guess the first act, but it really ramps up in its kind of complexity and enormousness appropriately as it goes into the scale. Like when it goes into the first dream, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the shots get crazier and crazier and crazier. And I, I, I was kind of surprised because I, as I was watching it last night, I was like, huh, maybe this movie isn't as crazy as I remember. And then, you know, like you just keep watching. You just you, like, like the whole, that whole centrifuge thing, that hallway that Joseph Gordon Levitt does the fight in. And then when all of them are anti-gravity and they're all floating and he wraps up all the bodies and like fl- flies them. Well, down. And like, just how many, 
moments there are like that. It's not like there was just this one thing that everybody remembers. Like, yeah, there's Paris flipping upside down and there's the fight scenes in anti-gravity and there's the cool ski sequence. And there is just, there's so many extremely memorable things from it. And not least of all is just the concept and the word inception and the way that it's become a common phrase. Like it's just a thing that people say, and it means something which like, of of course it wouldn't have before at all. The idea of things becoming meta, like the word meta was almost replaced by inception in in sort of common language. And uh, you know, that's the, the, all of the rules about the, the movie are pretty complicated. Like I, I'm sure there were people that were frustrated by the amount of exposition, but I think this was really challenging to make this make sense at all. And a common criticism I heard afterwards that I couldn't really relate to or, or agree with is like people were, I heard a few people saying this thing of like, uh, it felt like it was trying to be a bit too deep or, or like I was saying, sort of comparisons between how surprising things were compared to the sixth sense. And this just, it, it so wasn't about the novelty at all. Like the interesting parts of this film were the the visuals, the action, and the fact that there was still room for character development with, with all these big things going on. And I think you didn't need to understand or, or catch some, like, even if you only vaguely understood the concepts going on here, I think this should have still been an enjoyable movie. I don't know. I just think, I think it succeeded in so many ways. Yes. You know, I, I think I do agree with you in terms of it doesn't rely on that, but it is pretty much a big plot device in a way. It does depend mm-hmm. heavily on what it is to make everything happen. And that's, I guess, normal in terms of things being pushed into action or motion. But there's things that are relatively convenient for just the movie to take place or for it to feel more severe, like Cobb and Cobb's kind of whole dynamic of his wife and the time they spent in limbo and stuff. And her even, she's almost like a a plot device. She's not that deep of a character. And Mm -hmm. also just the reason why they're going in, like the crew that's kind of diving in to get this password out of the mind of, you know, a guy. And it's funny, actually, if I think back, it doesn't jump to mind why they were doing anything they did. I remember what they were aiming to do, but not at all why, like what the See, setup was. kind of a failing because it it, it isn't, yeah. it doesn't really matter because it's more about the people doing what they're like doing it than what they're doing. But it, it kind of just does, just does depend on, you know, the whole dream inside a dream inside a dream or whatever. And all the, all the rules they set up like limbo and that this happens and this happens, but it does, relate with the stretching of time specifically like the mechanism that the first dream is like real time uh sorry five minutes in the real time i think is 10 minutes in a dream or an hour in a dream and then five minutes in that first dream is like a week in the second dream and you know the each successive dream just gets longer and longer and longer in relative time and that mechanism is used really awesomely here and it's cool because it it gets all that speed ramping and slow motion and that relativity of parallel time timelines and stuff but i do see what those people would would say where they would say it's trying too hard 
to, you know, to be too deep and really it succeeds on the con- the high concept itself and not on the actual plot of like who it is or why it's important at all. You know, I'm also becoming conscious of how insanely far over time in, in the spirit of Christopher Nolan, how long this podcast is going to be. So I'm going to jump to just the ending of inception before we yeah, go on. for it. Do you, and I, uh, th- that was another like widely talked about things, the, the spinning top left at the end and people debating whether or not it was going to topple in that. Uh, I also feel like people that spent a lot of time thinking about that, really were missing the spirit of the film because I didn't leave the theater wondering about that at all. Like I, I know the point of focusing in on it was to, to wonder which reality he's in, but it didn't, it did not feel like an important question to me like that. It, I don't know. I don't feel like it was a mystery that was waiting to be solved. And a lot of people seem to have solved it by pointing to the the wedding ring. And I I think it was implied that he was in real reality. I, I felt that when I watched it, but I don't know. It was just, I thought it was interesting how many people focused in on that being a primary question left hanging. And to me, it, it just didn't feel that significant. Yeah. I, I don't really care. Honestly, uh, it doesn't, it didn't really get me yeah. in terms of that. Like, I got to keep thinking about this. I got to keep wondering about this. I typically reflect more heavily on like high concept or if it touches on an, I not an ideology, but f- like philosophy that, it's a question that I take back into my life, like a worthy question, not is he still in his dream or is he not, but should I continue to live my life this way or this way? And, you know, when it, when a movie really right. taps into uh, a different philosophy, that's when I think about it a lot. But, you know, sometimes those type, types of things can be fun as well, just th- that they set you up to, to have your... I don't know, head scratched. The last note I have that ties into our next one pretty well. Thanks for a good segues. This is the first time I ever noticed Tom Hardy. I don't know what else he did before this. I'm sure something. But he he wasn't important in Inception at all. But he did stand out to me right away. Like a- after the movie, I was like, who was that guy? He was pretty cool, even though he didn't do much. And then uh, he comes up immediately next in The Dark Knight Rises, where he was Bane and... The Dark Knight Rises, I have the least notes about. One of those notes is I didn't really like it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that I know that he tried incredibly hard. Like this was a challenging movie to make good, but it just wasn't really. And to me, mostly because of the story, there's lots of cool visual stuff. Some interesting things happened, but uh, my biggest frustration of, during the movie was how how useless Batman was. He didn't do a good job of anything and he made a lot of poor decisions. And I understand that this was supposed to be towards the end of his career and he's kind of beat up, but I just didn't enjoy seeing him fail so much and feeling like we went from such a powerful, you know, a human but powerful character to somebody that was just so flawed, like more flawed than, I keep using the word powerful. Yeah, and I I guess this is kind of a, a testament to my opinion in this movie as well as I think, I think I only saw it once. I think I saw it once in the yeah. theater and that was enough because it's super long too. Yeah. It's like two fifty, yeah. isn't it? Two hours and 50 minutes, something yeah. like that. Yeah. But just a side note, I first saw Tom Hardy in Bronson in uh, the, the movie mm-hmm. Bronson. And if, you know, I don't know if you haven't seen it, then see it. It's, it's cool. Nope. Uh, and he is just like, as dynamic as an actor can get in that movie playing uh, Charles Bronson. 
Um, it's, oh, it's crazy. It's hard to describe, but that's where I first saw him. I think it was in, I don't know, 2006 or something like that. And then I don't know when did inception come out? It's uh, 2010. So yeah, but obviously he's Tom Hardy now. Interstellar. I think we both said this is a personal favorite. Is that, is that right? Is this your number one Nolan? Like I, I specifically remember, like I said, I got this feeling like it was it was the greatest piece of art that humans have ever made. But you know what? It, it, it kind of reminded me of something. There's there's another reference I can use uh, to describe this feeling. You know the SpaceX launch, uh, the Falcon Heavy launch, where they launched the Tesla into space this year? Mm-hmm. Where on that Tesla, on one of the circuit boards, it said, made on Earth by humans. And there was something inherently awesome and kind of resonant in the interstellar is about humans relationship with earth. And we might end up being put in this scenario where the earth comes to like a used resource state where we have to move on. And the whole marketing campaign, which is like, what was it? Humans were born on earth, but they weren't meant to die here. There was something Mm -hmm. that just made me think like, if you think of all the civilizations and all the, like, everything that humans have done and then it builds up to the ability to tell a story like this and have it look like this. I, I got the sense like, Oh my God, I'm so proud of humans, you know, although it's a, mm-hmm. it's a story about human fallibility and human, you know, stupidity at the same time. But I also was just astounded and still am astounded at when I saw it in theaters, it was so big. And so the visuals were so good. Like, just shot after shot after comp after comp after like the the cinematography the all the the black hole renderings all of the wormhole renderings and and the score i mean this is a movie to be watched loud like if you're going to go watch it now you know either put on some good headphones or crank up your your stereo because that really changes the impact of it and yeah this is one i saw in IMAX projected on film twice because uh, fortunately, Calgary gets some of those at our IMAX theater. We get some of those film projections. So that was that was yeah. And, and you're right. The score. I have the score on my on my iPhone, and I listen to it all the time. It's it's unbelievably resonant. It's it carries with it the emotion and pace of the movie as well. Um, the fact that I, I think it's what organs and like church organs and you know clocks and. And Hans Zimmer, it's so, oh man, he nailed it on this. But the sequences as well, like I quite like when there's a moment in a movie that feels, uh, how can I describe this? The one thing that in my head, I guess, uh, is a weird reference, but in the story Romeo and Juliet, there's a, a scene, the balcony scene, when, you know, it's late in the evening and and everything's right and they're just two kids in love. and it's like this whole movie or this whole story happens around that one scene that's safe. It's like this whole crazy the happenings and all this context. But in that one scene, that thing's happening. And in Interstellar, the scene where they go to this must be the end of the second act, I guess. But when they go to the water planet, everything goes wrong. You know, the mm. waves coming, Tars like shifts and kicks ass and rolls away. To, to, that like, was such an amazing <laughs> oh my, I was like, oh my God, it's like Tars, go get her. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, right? This is so cool. And then when they get back, 
they've just lost i can't remember his name right the one character i don't I actually don't remember a lot mm-hmm. of the characters names which is kind of a crappy byproduct murph murph it's murph it's doyle i didn't like West no no, no i'm yeah. just saying i could remember yeah. that name because i don't like the way that they yelled murph murph. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> murph i don't know it just didn't feel like a real name like yeah, it's a, it's a funny know. word man murph but Doyle, who is played by Wes Bentley, the guy okay. that doesn't get in the ship and he gets washed away at the door. Yeah. And then they, they you know, have to get out of there as soon as possible so they can't reflect on that. And then, boom, they get back to the ship and that guy's been there for like 28 years or whatever. You know, their their other character, the buddy that's on the ship, uh, Romilly, David Gaiassi's character. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, what's Cooper, Matthew McConaughey's character has like 28 years of, video voicemail yeah. <laughs> and it's like it was just your your emotion just shot off the charts i guess I, mm-hmm. i'd like to think everyone was feeling it and that intensity and then that slam of emotion that hits matthew yeah. mcconaughey's face and and how they constructed that it. area of the movie was was really really strong like everything that you're describing that was the the most memorable section for me that uh has always sucked me and i mean that whole thing of matthew mcconaughey became a meme as well that i think is always hilarious too um it it was also just it was so well acted like sometimes you you believe crying and sometimes you don't and then this one i'm like wow he's feeling it i I believe it (laughs) yeah but i want to add on to the like the the shock of people disliking this movie because we we loved it quite a bit it was so strange. And I still hear people complaining about this movie in so many different ways. It's not, it's, it's not even just one thing. Like they just didn't think it was a very good movie. And I heard podcasts from people that I listen to all the time, like tearing it apart afterwards. So one of the biggest reasons I often heard came around this time in the film where Anne Hathaway's talking about how love is the one thing I wrote this down. Love is the one thing we know of capable of transcending space and time. And so a lot of people kind of make the wisecrack looking back at this movie that they're like, oh yeah, like, so love is the secret to the universe. And that's sort of the message that the movie had and that that was a frustration. I I've heard that a whole bunch. And I just feel like that's watching movies wrong to assume that one side character's statement about her personal beliefs that wasn't then amplified through themes in the rest of the film or other characters then sharing that opinion with her later, or there is no validation of her feelings of how love can stretch across time and space. This was just her expressing how she felt and and what motivated her personally. And I thought it was really weird for people to kind of latch on to that being the the film's message, which it didn't seem like it, it was it, to me. You know, kind of, yeah, I can kind of see your point and kind of not, you know, everything has to be there and intentional, intentionally. And in a Chris Nolan movie, everything is there intentionally. I do think that that taps into what the theme ultimately, you know, is, you know, what is the theme, I guess, of Interstellar, if not something to do with this. But this isn't what they were referring back to. Like when the actual connection through space and time is made later in the film, the there's no further references to that it's this human love emotion that is the connection. Well, what I think, I, I what, didn't I, what I just think is funny is she makes the point that love takes takes them across, you know, from place to place. It doesn't change as it's, you know, going into the black hole, out of the black hole, through the wormhole. Um, and then it ultimately is propelling them to go find 
Dr. Man, is that his name? Like Matt Matt Damon's yep. character? Yep. Oh no, it's that uh, Matt no, Man. Anne Hathaway's character loves that other doctor on that other. Oh planet, yeah, the right? other man. But regardless, she comments on love being the unchanging thing that you know goes from place to place. But so is like you could you could replace love with cynicism. You know, if you if, if right, imagine yeah. you like or like revenge or desperation, you know, if, you or, know yeah, it I mean, could yeah. it could be exactly the same. It's like if you wanted revenge on that guy that really screwed you over, that's all the way out through that wormhole and on that other planet, yeah, go Matt get Damon. him, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just like motivation X is the thing that ties us all together, and I personally am relating to love, so that's what I'm going to fill in the blank there. But um, yeah. you know, really, it's just that there are things that. Keep you motivated. Anyway, I mean, now I'm emphasizing a point that I feel like should have been underemphasized. But uh, one one thing that blew me away in my l- list of like facts after watching the documentary series, uh, d- director series, is that this movie came in under budget. Yeah, ten million. Uh, ten million dollars under budget. Which is kind of crazy, right? It's, wow. It's, well, I guess you know, imagine it had a billion dollar budget. You'd be like, you know, <laughs> it's less impressive. I don't know what the, what the like what the budget was, uh, but regardless, yeah, I mean, if there's twenty million, that then, uh, <laughs> economy or that, like that, you know how I was saying, you know, I I, I guess I was wrong about that guy in the second unit uh, working in Dark Knight, but he said that working on a Chris Nolan movie had ruined what movies in Hollywood were for him, and this statement as well kind of speaks to that that. Movies don't go under budget unless they obsessively, obsessively care about logistics, planning, the economy, like what, like, I mean, the, the, not the economy in general, but like the economy of shooting, right? Like economic shooting, shooting what you have to for exact reasons, having like having a plan that's very tight. And that's astounding. It could very well have been inverted if, if the, I guess if the actors' performances were like if they had to recast or someone didn't glow in a certain way, right? But that speaks to the rehearsal, the prep. I can't remember who is it that plays Tars. Oh, Bill Bill Irwin, and he had all that rehearsal time to like because he's mechanically controlling Tars behind the machine, right? And he's doing the voice for it, so. I put a note in here just of that TARS was awesome. Like <laughs> Note, such TARS a, is Such awesome. a relatively small character in it and very simple, you know, like visually incredibly simple, simpler than the droids in Star Wars oh, yeah. in a lot of ways and so effective. Like I loved his personality. Like that, vo- the voice was was synthesized to be fully human instead of slightly robotic. And, and um, you know, the whole yeah, sincerity, or no, and, not sincerity, it was discretion settings, honesty settings, and humor settings, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Which are hilarious, you know, that he's like, yeah, turn the honesty setting down, you know, 20% or whatever. But what what is worth commenting on as well, you know, Interstellar, I don't know if you remember how it was marketed, but it was pretty secretive, you know? Like the posters kind of only had the ship kind of shooting out of the uh, atmosphere, and it didn't have a ton of trailers right at the beginning. Like it had a teaser it it definitely it hid Matt Damon uh, completely away from all marketing mm-hmm. materials, but yeah, that was a surprise but, for me. Oh, it was a surprise for everyone, I think, unless a human ruined yeah. it for you. But one thing, humans, yeah, really they really do. I guess we really do. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, yeah, what, what perspective were you speaking from? <laughs> but uh, 
the one thing that also is worth it here is, you know how we talked about the Dark Knight, like Heath Ledger's Joker and the redefinition of what Joker could be. TARS really is that. Like, it's it's weird how perfect that, especially, especially in that scene where TARS, he's like, go pick up, you know, on the water planet, go, go pick her up. She <laughs> needs your help. And it just yeah, shifts. Amazing. And you're like, oh, my God, it's so functional, right? And you you don't. Mm. Like when you see it walking, you think, ah, it's clunky and whatever. And then it it turns out to be this kind of, well, it's military grade, right? They comment on it being post-military or like pre or used to be in the military. But that that surprised me maybe the most is how perfect it felt after they taught you what it was and then showed you what it could do. And then you're like, yeah, AIs or robots should be shaped like that. You know, like that makes mm-hmm. sense. And the whole, it's like the whole world doesn't know that until a movie like this puts the research in and they do all the production design, the character design, and they figure those things out. And then they, you know, and then they show everywhere, everyone the way it could, could be. And it's, and it's the same in Interstellar with, you know, they had scientific papers on black holes published from this movie, you know, because it was so physically accurate and so much research yeah, was done. In the, in the VFX, they did the real math instead of just visual representations. A lot of it was actually calculating how these black holes would look. Which looked. is insane. You know, they, they you know, yeah. at least in that director's series video, they said that some of the frames took a hundred hours to render per frame. And I believe, I, I can only believe that if it's not taking any cheats, right? Cause I do, you know, visual effects rendering myself and rendering is the most annoying thing. Cause even if it takes five minutes, it's five minutes per frame and then 24 frames per second. And it just adds up so quickly, but for these simulations to be completely physically accurate and really follow real physics. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. It would be so comprehensive to do that. But also you use the term special effects just randomly earlier and, and okay. special effects as opposed to visual effects is kind of funny because special effects is like practical effects usually. Like explosions and pyro and, you know, things being mm-hmm. built and destroyed. And one of Christopher Nolan's big things is like as much in camera as possible and as little visual effects as possible or visual effects. When yeah, something we didn't touch necessary. on at all or very little so far, but is really significant. I mean, it's a huge part of his aesthetic and how we end up being drawn into his worlds, but we, we really haven't talked. Yeah. About which is kind of crazy. I, I also, just as a side note, it's only occurred to me this year in retrospect, because I didn't know who Tim Timothy Chal, uh, Chalamet was until this year with call me by your name and lady bird. I don't know who he is right now. As Did you see it. call me by your name? Oh, no. Oh, lady both bird. of them are unbelievable, but he's the lead actor in call me by your name. And just like, when you see it, you the kid, the kid or the, the grown up kid, he's seventeen year old kid, and oh, okay, so I've seen. Photos oh my of god, him. he's unbelievably good. But then he plays the fifteen year old version of the son in uh, Interstellar, um. and I always think that's funny. I guess his name's Tom at fifteen year old, fifteen years old before he ages and becomes Casey Affleck, but. I always think that's funny. And uh, w- when you look back and see actors before they became known for what they're now known for. Well, yeah, the uh, Dark Knight and Joffrey. Is it Dark Knight or Batman oh, Begins? That Batman, has... Batman Begins, I think, and Joffrey from Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. 
And yeah. actually, on that note, um, I lied when I said that I had seen Tom Hardy in Bronson. The first no, that, <laughs> okay. that's not the first time I saw him. The first time I saw him is in Band of Brothers. You've watched that. A I lot have, yeah, obsessively watched Band of Brothers. Like the whole series, I've seen ten times probably. I <laughs> tend to watch it a lot around uh, Remembrance Day. It's one of the best ways I kind of pay respects in terms of putting my heart in in the right place that you know they sacrificed and gave. But Band of Brothers, two thousand one. And it is loaded, like the the hugest cast, unbelievably stacked, but a young Tom Hardy is in it, which Mm. is kind of funny. But, you know, Interstellar, uh, the achievement on screen, like what made its way on screen and those visuals and those sequences and how it sounded like the sound design and the music, it was so big, like in the theater, huge feeling. Well, and so here we are, the first time that he's working with cinematographer, I'm going to say this correctly, Hoyta Van Hoytima. Yeah, good job. And one thing I really noticed about the visuals, other than them being amazing, I mean, there's all sorts of great things to say about it. A strange thing about it is the way that all the highlights are blown oh, yeah. out, like much more than, than normal movies. And I both wonder where that decision came from. And then I also wonder what the technique is there. Like, did they just have lighting ratios that they knew were beyond what the film could handle or well, was it a great part of the grading process or like, I don't know. It's, it's a very strange place to end up when you have, you know, the, the best film stocks in the world and access to any lights you want. And you consciously decide to push the, the capture material beyond its capabilities to, to blow well, it out. It's um, not about pushing it beyond its capabilities from a DP's perspective, especially the, the, oh, I, for some reason I can't think of anything but internal interior, no, in, interiors, the in, interiors, <laughs> when your windows are blown out, like you would like, it's like a big ND filter, like that you roll onto the windows, right? You can stop windows down so they don't blow out. And that's if you're not lighting through a window, but if it's like the window and the sky is outside, then it's like a it's like a roll of ND filter that you it, it's like a window like a, when you tint windows in cars it's the exact same way that yep. you do that and it, when you have an achievement of cinematography at this level and you have blown out highlights it's that they chose to have blown out highlights you know yeah exactly what I think it's for like why they made that decision is because it adds to a level of realism I mean the same reason that you would do. You would include handheld shots when obviously you can always put it on a steady cam or a dolly. Handheld adds to this feeling of being more visceral and being more present in the in the image. And the, the blown outness adds to that, you know, the the lighting isn't being controlled and manipulated by humans. It's real world lighting. And if you were actually just taking photos in the real world, you can't control those ratios so accurately. So even in their controlled environment, they're letting it blow out to make it feel more real. That's that's my assumption. That's my head. <laughs> yeah, you know, it. you could be onto something. I think if you have, uh, you could work it in thematically, like the outdoors is a threat, for instance. If it's or the things off in the distant distance are unknown. Basically, you can retcon it into whatever you, you want. You could. <laughs> um, I wonder, though, because so much of it is is so intentional, and they 
they really design it all that I'm not sure. Other than the fact that at the end of the day, it works. And yeah. that's, that's one of the things about color grading and cinematic color grading. That's always blown me away. Like the Bourne movies, you know, or the matrix being so green and, you know, this color palettes that are crazy. But if you did it in like a photo shoot, you'd think, Oh, this is too green. But when you see it in the context of the movie, you're like, it's, it's mm-hmm. exactly what it should it works. be. Yeah. And that that's bizarre. But inter interstellar, the, my belief in seeing movies in the theater increased or I gained or no, sorry. I maintained that belief after seeing interstellar and that that's an important thing because we as a viewing audience could either lose our confidence in theater viewing, especially with Netflix and home like movies on demand. Mm -hmm. And it's just different. And specifically what interstellar achieved in the in theater viewing and then extended on to Dunkirk, especially pushed that button on, you know, see it in the theater, see it in the biggest screen you can find on IMAX. And it really matters. My last note about Interstellar is that a bunch of it was filmed near Calgary, which uh, shout out to our hometown. Just wait, but just wait. Don't as rush, far as seeing rush things, that, you know? Well, there, okay. I, I don't have anything else scene. to add to it. And we're all, and remember how far there's we are. <laughs> remember we're two and a half hours <laughs> There's the a show. scene in Interstellar that was filmed in Okotoks, the town where I grew up in. Yeah, and crazy. they planted a cornfield out here uh, out of season and then sold the corn at a profit after they were, after they? they were done filming. <laughs> I thought they burned. They, the don't, they burned a lot of it, but that was one of the ways right. that they didn't waste money is they made money on that cornfield that they, that they uh, planted. Crazy. Is that house still there? Um, you know what? Cause they built the house. I for have the been film. wanting to go out to that house. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I'll make out a, so it, it is there. Uh, I, I'm not going to say yes or no. I don't know. Yeah. Let's okay. find it. <laughs> Field trip. But yeah, I also wanted to segue into Dunkirk because after seeing Interstellar in theater twice, uh, both in IMAX, I, I swore to myself I'd see all future Nolan films in theater without hesitation. It, it was after Interstellar that I'm like, this, he is now a no questions asked director where I'm going to see this in the best presentation form I can every time uh, without waiting for reviews or to, to know if it's good or not. And with Dunkirk, I'm... I'm glad I did that because the people liked it, but it, it wasn't, I don't know. It, it was a strange movie. Dunkirk is definitely from a director that makes strange movies. It was actually the strangest in my opinion, mm-hmm. not because I it was agree. a, it, the story was relatively conventional. It was more conventional than many others and more grounded in reality, but it was weird how grounded it was and made it much less of a regular movie. So when I came out of it and people were like, was it good? I was like, well, it was really interesting. It was, it was definitely an experience. And part of the impression I had was that it was kind of like what, it almost felt more like a traditional IMAX mm-hmm. film where the purpose is to teach you something and to bring you into a world, mm-hmm. but not so much to tell a story. There, the, you know, the, the characters were left relatively distant from the audience. You didn't get to know any of them very well at all. Like names and relationships weren't all that important, but it, it was all about being in this world and this reality for, for 70 minutes. It was also his shortest film. Is, is that how long it was? I don't know how long it is. I didn't, I didn't write it down, but I know it was his shortest. I, I you know, I agree. Dunkirk is a, was a weird watch. 
it did bring you viscerally into the scenario of what it might have been like on those be- on that beach or you know in that in that place and to be that lost and that much pressure but yeah you don't get to know any of the characters really and then the the three separate timelines all representing three different amounts of time i think it's 1 hour 1 day and 1 week right and like, I went and saw that with my dad and that went right over his head. He was like, I don't know what I just saw. <laughs> like, he said, there's so many shots. Like they use the same He, One of the things he said was that it was bad cinematography. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, they use the same shot of the plane, like a, a bunch of times. And I was like, well, the plane is one hour, you know, like there's not that mm-hmm. many variations of it. And he's like, what do you mean one hour? I was like, oh, man. But like that's that's <laughs> yeah. very much like right. Interstellar too, where it's like they went through the wormhole or when they went into the black hole or on the edge of the black hole, time is relative. And, and people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I actually, it was the least clear to me in this movie, his, his, his relationships with time. Dunkirk, it was the most non-obvious. Like it took me the longest through the film to start grasping how these things related to each other. It, it, it didn't come across as clearly as the others. Yeah. What I found funny just was a couple things on Dunkirk. The funny thing is instead of extras, a lot of the time they use cardboard cutouts or like not cardboard, but they were <laughs> wood cutouts. And there's a couple mm-hmm. times in the movie where you can see them where it's like, clearly that's a cutout of a person in the background. And then the second thing is I, like you were saying about in Calgary, we have an IMAX projector where it gets projected in 70 millimeters, which is awesome, right? Cause we, we have in exactly the way Christopher Nolan wants people to see this. We have the theater here that gives us that. But when I saw Dunkirk, it was flickering like crazy. Like hmm. it was like, you know, just a brightness flicker, but really distracting. And Oof. yeah, I don't know. I got over it because I kind of thought I'm here to support this by putting my butt in the seat, you know, and give this money. But it really missed the mark on, you know, that technical perfectness. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is the sound design was really loud, like louder than his other movies. And it's like when someone says that a movie's too long and, and you think, well, no. There's a difference between long, like long, like it is long and too long. Same with it's loud and too loud. Well, just as a last note, I guess, or another resource to pass along is Vox had an amazing video on Hans Zimmer's Zimmer's score and the fact that it had the shepherd's tone, the like never ending ascending tone. And it's really interesting. Like, why does it feel so tense? And why does the score translate that so well? But it's a cool kind of music science. I had a a really, so I I talked to a friend that I kind of wanted to like have him weigh in on this conversation. I'm going to drag him into a future podcast, Pete Forrester. And I was talking to him about Christopher Nolan and he is not a fan. He He doesn't really enjoy his films, which I find interesting for a really smart guy to have that opinion. But his his analogy that connected with me, like, oh, I kind of get that, is that the shepherd tone, which is the idea that music sounds like it's getting high, that pitch is getting higher and higher and higher infinitely, is also how his films feel emotionally, that it feels like they're always working towards a crescendo or a climax that never happens. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I can kind of see that. Like, I, I know what you mean by that. It's never bothered me, but 
I can understand. Yeah, that. I, I, um, you know, I, I know I'm getting, I'm getting this sense more and more as I see movies, the type of movies I like, and ultimately the type of movies I want to make. Which I like linear movies, like parallel storylines are cool, and like, c- like crazy intertwined storylines or multiple codependent storylines. Those are cool, but linear movies, I tend to like the most where it's just something that happens and then something else that happens, then something else. And it's just, it all happens in order. And also I typically like movies that have a beginning, middle and end, you know, where they have a three act, a denouement. Like, I, I, I don't know if it's because of my brain was trained in popular movies in the eighties and nineties that way, but I, I do like those a lot. And the only one that's challenged me like a lot on the three act structure is in that YouTube channel, Letters from a Screenplay, he did a breakdown of uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Fincher's version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And the mm-hmm. fact that that has five acts, Fincher is, you know, going away from the three-act structure. But when you go back to Nolan and you think it, it does actually feel a lot like it just the pressure is is on, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it doesn't really pay off. Like same with Inception, the only thing that really, I guess they, they end up getting out, you know, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of nod to each other and then they go home. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. not really resolve, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, that's a funny point though. That is a good intellectual point on what the movies kind yeah. of, the taste that they leave in your mouth. I, I think though, the, maybe the two exceptions though, is I do feel like Memento and the Prestige had very satisfying mm-hmm. endings. The, just I'm just looking at the list of movies. I'm like, yeah, those two. At the end, I'm like, wow, yeah, I, I completed the, the process yeah. here. Well, you know, like at the end of the day, we can tighten this up or end it off. You know, Christopher Nolan is a person that is worth your attention and he's worth studying. I think both Wally Pfister and Hoyt Van Hoytima is, mm-hmm. they are doing things that are teaching the rest of us what can be done. And they it is admirable in craft and story some some people you know if you don't relate with the stories or they're not your types of movies you it's an undeniable push of the craft and one of the things actually that i i heard christopher nolan say in that dga um talk that like three and a half hour dga talk was he's at a point in his career where as a writer, he's writing what he should be writing versus writing something that he knows will be hard to direct, so he might not write it. And he said the example is now he is more likely to start a scene heading by saying exterior snowing, (laughs) you know, where it's just snowing outside because he knows Mm -hmm. from a filmmaking perspective that is so hard to do to get a high-level technical level continuity in it. But now he, if it has to be outside and the story depends on it being snowy, he's now the writer that's writing those stories because it's what it Mm -hmm. should be. And that isn't how he started his career. Right. So you build up to becoming that person. And it's, it's like, it's kind of amazing to think that his career is not even half over, you know, if he keeps on going anyway, I don't know if he's going to do like a Tarantino kind of cap on his career. But mm-hmm. um, it's incredible to think that whatever the massive achievements five years from now, six years from now, as it keeps getting bigger and bigger, or, you know, if scope can get larger, he's one of the people that's going to keep pushing right. it. Well, or if he goes in the direction of Dunkirk, which c- could happen because it was very commercially successful, but in a lot of ways, an art film, you know, it wasn't, it was pretty experimental and not, 
nearly as widely palatable as all the others. I could I could see him kind of branching off like that more. I mean, it just, I guess there's no point in speculating what decisions he'll make about what to make next. But you Speculate. know, I, I hope we see at least a few. <laughs> well, I'd like to see a few more blockbusters. That's that's all. Like, I don't mind him doing most of the rest of his career, just experimenting and pushing film and cinema as a medium or as a as a format. There are a couple other people, you know, that's what James Cameron is for, too. Yeah, I trust Christopher Nolan to do it. I don't know. For example, just as easily. (laughs) I'm not planning any, uh, I'm not planning any James Cameron episodes anytime soon, but maybe that's, yeah, that's personal bias. I I can't wait until the Avatar, next Avatar movies come out, but that's a whole other thing. And it is just admiration. He's worth the attention and you know it's 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 even interesting when i did a search just before we we started this podcast yesterday what comes up on google right now is christopher nolan's admiration of india's filmmaking like he's in india doing some project in india or something you know and he's like oh it's you know an amazing filmmaking culture here and it's like this is great keep on keep on rocking keep on rolling man cuz like it yeah. is some of the highest level craft and the collaborations of what he seems to be getting out of some actors and specifically his collaboration with like his cinematographers and his, uh, and Hans Zimmer. And, you know, if he keeps on. Yeah, it's funny I, to, to put my cap on it, it. It seems like Spielberg is the name that means filmmaking. He, he kind of has the de facto reputation of being the greatest director of all time when people don't really think about it. You know, you know, he's just kind of the, the name that means great filmmaking along with maybe like yeah. Hitchcock. But so far, I think Nolan has a much better track record than Spielberg did at this point in his career and has, has kind of fallen down less and I think is on track to be more of the next Spielberg than Spielberg was in a lot yeah, of ways, he, he, uh, it, both in terms of breaking new ground and doing a great job of established formats. And, you know, I, I, I think his he, he's going to have... Well, obviously he's going to have a great career. I don't need to tell anybody that. Well, it's he obvious. gets to he gets the luxury of being able to stand on more shoulders of more giants, right? He stands on Spielberg's yeah, yeah. shoulders. And what's interesting about even who knows who's listening to this, um, but the people who are inspired to to even up the game and who are the next Christopher Nolans get to stand on the shoulders of both Spielberg and Nolan and Kubrick and Fincher and we get to we get to have it all, right, in terms of what inspires us. And we live in an amazing time, hence the amount of references I had, like Vox, Nerd Writer, this video, this video. There's so much stuff to be able to study these movies on top of just watching the movie, which is... Well, I, I hope it's Chris Dowsett that's standing on the next uh, shoulders. Well, chat, we'll see. So. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much for joining me, Chris. This was awesome. I'm glad we could go so in-depth on Same this. here, and I look forward to listening to the next uh, whatever you whatever director you cover and I love the podcast keep keep rocking and I look forward to the next time I'm on as well ni la bien con ma fer